0: So starting at the beginning of chapter 2, the Apostle urges us, as those who have received the gospel, who have heard the preaching of the word of him who delivers his people, not with silver or gold, but with something far more precious. With the precious blood of the Son of God. Therefore, so, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone. that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord, These two verses that comprise our sermon text this morning are among my favorite in all of Scripture, not because they're particularly poetic and not because they declare something unexpected. In fact, nothing is said here that is not spoken in far greater detail and and poetry elsewhere in Scripture, but these two verses summarize with simplicity and power the gift of we have been given in being restored to peace with God. And that summary shows us everything has changed for us in an amazing way. There are those who believe that the gospel is exclusively about getting folks to heaven. We've talked about that some in the past year or so. They, uh, they don't really want to hear about Creation or stewardship or politics or social sins. All of that, they believe, is a distraction. What we need to focus on isn't the sins and the dysfunction of this world or the work that we do during our work week. What we need to focus on is getting people into heaven. That's what matters. All the rest is just a kind of a distraction. So uh, this text confronts that tells us it's, it's not just about getting to heaven. What happens here and now, what happens this moment, what we do in the other six days of the week, that matters. That's part of our calling, that's part of our worship. But you know, as much as we've talked about those who are exclusively heavenly-minded, there's other folks who whose misunderstanding of the Christian life is far more common. Many of those, especially in our country, who call themselves Christians, they they just don't think about, they never really ponder what significance there might be in their faith for the rest of life. They don't think about it, they don't ponder it, because they're distracted. They're distracted by their favorite sport. They're distracted by their television, their movies, their entertainment, their hobby. They're distracted by the work that really defines them. They're distracted by all this other stuff from the gospel, from the Christian life, from the identity we should have as followers of the Lord. That's a terrible shame. Now, whether whether they're just distracted by the things of life or their focus is wrong in that they think it's all about and only about getting to heaven, this text confronts us and calls us to a new understanding of the significance and the importance of having turned to Christ. What this brief text shows us is earth-shaking for those who take it seriously. Because it shows that that when we turn to Christ, when we embrace Him as our Savior, He saves us from sin, but that's just the start. We're saved from sin, but also from the emptiness of a life lived for self. We're promised heaven and also significance for our time here on earth. In these two simple verses, we see that God has now set us apart as unique as those who are uniquely His, as those who are uniquely called to His service. And so that's what we consider this morning, how God has set His people apart as unique. And that starts out with our identity. We are uniquely identified as servants of God. Our text starts out with a, a contrast, but you. That clause makes us think of what just, just before that we were told, how some... They hear the gospel, they're confronted with Christ, but they reject Him. And so the one who has become the cornerstone of the church, the one from whom the whole kingdom is being built, He becomes for them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They they hear the gospel, but they reject it, and so that becomes their condemnation. But you, but you have been given something different, something better, something glorious, something wonderful, because God has worked in you the faith by which you can receive Christ. God has given to you the power to accept that message of the cornerstone. And therefore, things are entirely and utterly different for you. You have a new identity. You're special. Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done for you. And he spells that out in the four clauses that follow. You, he says, are a chosen race. Now that word race, if you're using a different Bible translation, um, you'll see that it's translated differently. It's translated differently in every translation. The New King James says chosen generation. The New International Version says chosen people. The Greek word there is... It's a little bit vague. The focus of that word is simply that this is a group that is intimately joined together, intimately united. There is something, whether shared DNA or shared experience or shared goals, there is something essential that joins them together. And so tight is their unity that they are to be regarded as a single unit. What unites us is that we are the ones who are chosen. All of mankind deserved to be cast off. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, God would have been entirely just to cast us off and to create a new humanity for himself. Right? He would have been entirely just to condemn us all to eternal suffering and just call us a write-off. But he didn't even knowing the sin and the rebellion that we would plunge ourselves into, God chose us. And then he did everything to make that choosing a reality. He sent his son to suffer the consequence of our sin and to live the life of righteous perfection. He sent the gospel To confront us with the message of the Son. He sent His Spirit to soften our hearts and to enlighten our minds. He sent the church to teach us what faith looks like and to disciple us into that faith. You are a chosen generation, a chosen people. A people that God has set apart and called to Himself. God has always identified His people in that way. Back in Israel. Deuteronomy 10, verse 15, God said through Moses, The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring, you, after them, above all peoples as you are this day. Later on in uh, Isaiah 41, he says, You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you off. And that's what he says to us today. You are my chosen generation, my chosen people, the ones that I set apart for myself. And you are a royal priesthood, he says. A priesthood that refers to the people God sets apart for worship. Priests draw near to God, bringing the worship that he deserves. And then they go out into the world and they testify to that worship. But we're not merely priests like in old Israel. In old Israel, you had the priests over here. and You had the, the prophets over here. And you had the kings over here. And they each had their different tasks. But we, he says, are a royal priesthood. Priests who are also kings. Now to old Israel, that wouldn't have made much sense. But when Jesus came, he took those three offices of Israel and he united them in one. He was the prophet who came proclaiming the truth of, what God, of who God is and what God had decreed. He is the one who came as the perfect priest, offering himself as the, the absolutely essential sacrifice by which we would be saved. And then he was seated on the throne in heaven exercising kingly authority over all things for us. And now when we put our trust in Him, when by faith we are joined to Him, we share in those offices. And so we become the fulfillment of Israel's priesthood, showing the world what worship is to be like and how it's to be all-encompassing, how it's to delight us as we gather together as God's people, but also how it's to define the fullness of our lives. And we're a royal priesthood. Because for us, it's not just about what we do on Sunday, what we do when we have a Psalter hymnal in hand. It's also what we do when we walk out of this building and we go and interact with our neighbor, or we go out on the job site, or we raise our children, or we interact with our spouse. All of life has become an offering unto God, a demonstration of of our submission unto Him and our love for Him. Together we share in that calling as those who are joined to Christ by faith of being a royal priesthood, demonstrating to all the world the calling of mankind, the calling to serve God, to worship God, to bring Him glory. Moreover, he says we are a holy nation. The church is a people, a nation that is holy. That is, we're uniquely set apart unto God. We belong to God in a way that no other group does. Folks, this is important because it reminds us that we are a pilgrim people. Yes, we live in America, and yes, we enjoy, we deeply treasure the freedoms and the rights that we've been given as Americans. But At the end of the day, America is not our final home. Our home is the kingdom of God. It's it's a nation that transcends every earthly nation. It's a kingdom that existed long before the kingdoms of today ever existed and which will continue long after they are dust and memories. Like the exiles of Israel cast off into Babylon. Our calling is the calling that Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah 29. When he said, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on, his, on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, God told Israel of old, I sent you there. I will bless you there. You need to serve me in that place until I bring you back to the place that's been promised. Well, that's us today. We are a holy nation sent out into the nations. This is not our final home, but we've been sent here for the good of this place. America is so exceptional only because God established it through His people, many of them. And it will continue to be a blessing to the world only insofar as God's people use it to His ends and unto His glory. But our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate hope is in the kingdom that will transcend this land. Because after all, we are a people for His possession. God has always assured His people that He loves them uniquely. In Deuteronomy 7, God told Israel they were a holy people, that they were a special treasure among all the peoples of the world. He repeated those words. Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 26, you are my holy people, you are my special treasure. And today He says it to us. The God who made you and who constantly sustains you. The one who sent His Son to save you from your sin and to bring you back to Himself. This God loves you, cherishes you in a way that is absolutely and utterly unique. Kids, you know your parents love you, right? But when dad looks on mom, he loves her with a love that is infinitely beyond, right? When mom looks at dad, he's the one she loves most among people. That's what God says to us. He expresses a blessing in the way He pours out the rain upon the fields of the just and the unjust alike. Right? He provides for the people of all the earth, but those whom He has chosen, those who are holy in Christ, they are a people for His special love, for His unique devotion. He has set you apart as His and has promised that every single detail of your life He will maneuver and orchestrate for your good and for His glory. And folks, there is nothing more essential, more crucial to your identity than that. It means that in the sight of God Himself who made you, you are Loved, cherished, delighted in. It means that you matter. You matter to the one who created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes you feel like you don't matter. Sometimes you feel like you you make so many mistakes. You fall into so many sins. You just can't do anything right. There's nothing really special about you. But, But this text says no. You're special to God, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That means your talents, your strengths, your abilities, your character, all of it is a delight to the God who made you, the God who saves you, the God who has promised that no one will ever snatch you from His hand. Of all the multitudes of people... Throughout the world, throughout every age, God chose you to be His. To be His servant, to be His child, to be His beloved one. You are therefore uniquely called to celebrate God, which is the second thing we see here. Right in the middle of verse 9, we see the word that, or so that. That tells us a, a purpose, a goal, an end. This is who you are unto this end. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And therefore, this is your purpose. This is your calling, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That word excellencies, it it speaks of that which is morally commendable, morally perfect, really. It speaks of that against which we can allege nothing wrong right? The excellencies of someone are are those things that they do perfectly right. Now among men, that's nothing, right? Everything we do until we finally attain the fullness of the perfection that we've been promised, everything we do is stained with sin, right? But what God does is perfect. What God does has no flaw, no failure, no brokenness at all. And he wants us to proclaim that. Now that's a twofold calling. On the one hand, he wants us to confess to all the world who he is. He wants us to tell people about who God is and what he's like and what he's done. And at the same time, he wants us to worship him. He wants us to confess it back to him. He wants us to acknowledge who it is that we're worshiping and what he is like. And to ensure that we will do that, he recalls, the apostle recalls what he has done, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Lord called you out of darkness. In Scripture, darkness generally represents sin and rebellion, exclusion from the blessings of God, and ultimately death. And that's where we started. We all started in the darkness of sin. We're going to talk about that tonight. Because of the guilt that we possess because of Adam's rebellion, and because of the corruption that we inherited from Adam, when we were still in the womb, we were sinful. Our very first deeds were were stained with the ugliness of rebellion. We deserved God's wrath from the very start. That's the darkness into which we were born, but God called us out of the darkness and into his light. Light is how Scripture often characterizes the presence of God. In Isaiah 60, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise on you, and His glory shall be seen upon you. And John 9, Jesus identifies Himself as the light of the world. We're called to enter that light by trusting in Him. In, in John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By trusting in Jesus, we are called out of the darkness of our sin, out of the darkness of death, and into the light of fellowship with God, into the light of forgiveness by Christ, into the light of a brand new power and motivation through the Holy Spirit. There we have freedom from sin. There we have the ability to worship and to glorify God. And that's what we've been given. We have, been, we have experienced a total and complete transformation. We were enslaved into the depths of darkness. Sin held us captive. We could do nothing to escape it on our own. God reached into that darkness, and through Christ, He drew us out into the light where we could see Him, where we could know Him, where we could serve Him and fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Therefore, we proclaim His excellencies. We worship Him because He delivered us from the worship of all the world's false gods. We worship Him because He rescued us from the darkness of pointlessly pursuing the passions of the flesh. And He has given us His glorious light, the light of knowing the truth, the light of knowing reality. Understand, young people, understand. You understand the world because you know the Lord, because you know His Word. You're able to understand the world in in ways that the unbeliever can't. They see it all in their darkness, in their brokenness. Again, we're going to talk about this tonight, but they see the world as this unguided, purposeless mass of mess. Right? It's all unguided accident. There's no ultimate purpose, no ultimate goal, no ultimate anything. The best they think they can hope for, at least on the surface, The best they think they can hope for is to make a name for themselves so that a few generations will remember who they were. But they know that ultimately even that will be forgotten. How empty. How hopeless. But we have been given something infinitely better. We've been drawn into the light of the Lord so that we can know that we were made for eternity, that God who loves us, who calls us His His special people whom He uniquely loves. We will live with Him. We will serve Him. We will glorify Him forever. How can we not proclaim the excellencies of such a God? And we need to. The world needs us to. We were left here for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of this God because, folks, we are surrounded by people who in their sin, in their rebellion, have chosen not to know Him. Deep down they know him. The the world won't allow them to deny that he exists. But they do everything they can to hide that knowledge, to, to block that reality out, because they know that then they have to answer for their sin. But God has made you an instrument of showing them the light. Last night, probably everybody in this room lost power at some point. Conveniently, it was at a time when the thunder was loud enough to wake some of us up. If you tried to stumble through your house to make sure everything was okay, you saw how dark darkness can get. That's where unbelievers live. They live in this self-inflicted darkness that doesn't allow them to understand why 2 plus 2 equals 4 makes sense. They live in the undifferentiated darkness of sin and rebellion and wickedness and pointlessness. But you have the privilege and the calling of bringing that light into which you've been delivered into their presence. And suddenly they can see. They can see that there's a better way. They can see that escape is possible. They can see that life looks different. It looks joyful. It looks purposeful. It doesn't yet look perfect because we haven't yet been perfected. But it looks like being on the way to perfection. And that looks amazing. And some of those who see you who see the love that you show them, the compassion and the care that you express toward them, who see the love and the joy that you have in the Lord, who see how over time you're changing, some of them seeing that they will be drawn like a moth to flame. And they will want to know more. They will want to know, how can I have that light? How can I enter into that glory? Others will hate it. They will crave that darkness. But they will know that they've seen the light. They will not be able to testify that they didn't know better. And God, either way, God will receive the glory that He deserves, which you were created, which you were saved, to give Him. This is your calling. The calling to celebrate God by proclaiming His excellencies. It is impossible... That you could find a greater calling than this. And here's the thing, it's a calling that encompasses all of life. It's a calling that you fulfill when you gather with God's people here, certainly. It's a calling that you fulfill when you're gathered as families doing devotions, most assuredly. But it's a calling you fulfill when you remark to your neighbor, standing in your front yard with coffee in hand, what a beautiful sunrise our God has made. There is no artist like Him. It's a calling you fulfill when you embrace that grieving coworker and tell him that there is someone who has overcome death. It's a calling you fulfill when you talk to that troubled young person and say, you know, there's, there's comfort, there's hope. You have the ability to lead them into the light, to glorify God in a way that those outside of Christ can't. And recognize that as God's unique people, we do have that unique perspective on God. Like I said, the person outside of Christ, for them, God is terrifying. Because in their heart of hearts, they know that He's going to be their judge. They're going to have to answer to Him for everything they've done. We're different. We're not terrified of God. Jesus took away the terror. We fear God, but with a respect, with a love, with a devotion As those who've been reconciled, we're uniquely positioned to appreciate God. And that's the last thing we see here, that we are uniquely positioned to appreciate God. Again, we were in the darkness, but He drew us into the light. That allows us to know Him. To to understand who God is and what He's like in a way that we couldn't before. But He did more than that. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What's that mean? Outside of Christ, nothing differentiates people. Oh, sure, they have different cultural baggage, different language, different skin tones, sure. But at the end of the day, they're all alike. They're all living In the darkness. They're all living for themselves. They're all devoted to the flesh. And it's empty and they know it. It has no purpose. It has no goal. It has no hope. It has no lasting joy. They are not a people. They have no significant future. They have no significance in the presence. They are of nothing and for nothing. They are isolated, even in the midst of a crowd. It is in Christ, and only in Christ, that we are called out of that isolation, out of that darkness, out of that emptiness, and made made part of something that is greater and good. Why do people, especially in the inner cities, join gangs? You ever wonder that? They get into these gangs that are, are filled with Sin and wickedness and violence. You think, why would anybody ever intentionally join? They want to be part of something. They want to be part of something that will protect them, something that will identify them, something that will give them significance. A gang is not the answer, but it's the only thing they can see. But the Lord has called us into something infinitely better. We were in the midst of all that emptiness and insignificance and He called us to be part of His people, part of His kingdom. Part of the true humanity that will love and serve the Lord in all that we do with every breath that we breathe throughout all of eternity. That's who we are. That's what we are. We were were made, we were saved, we were called. that we might live the entirety of our lives for the glory of God. That's who we are. Once you were not a people, once you were part of that insignificant and empty mass of mankind, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have. There was a time when we were filled with misery. Like the world is filled with misery. Now, you might not even remember that time. You might have been blessed to turn to the Lord at such a young age. You can't remember the misery of being without Him, or maybe not. Some of you, some of you, some of us, we learned the hard way, huh? We had to try to go our own way. Oh, sure, we we did the things that were expected of us. We put on a nice polish on the outside, but we were... Rust and rottenness inside. Rebelling against God, living for self, trying to create our own identity, our own purpose. And it was ugly. Because when the night fell, when the people went away, we knew this isn't right. And we're going to have to answer for it. But God has rescued us. How amazing is that? He didn't say, this is what you have to pay. This is what you have to do. This is what you... No, he did it all. All we had to do was trust the Lord Jesus with the faith that God himself gave us. And as a result, we are assured of the mercy of God. He forgave us our sins. He has made us his children. No one can ever snatch us from his hand. This is our identity. Once not a people, but now the people of God. Once not having received mercy, but now having received mercy. Once dwelling in the depths of darkness and now living in the unapproachable light of Christ. That's who we are. And if that's who we are, how can we not tell the world? How can we not show them the way? How can we not proclaim the excellencies of the one who has done it all? We must. And as we do, we can know It doesn't matter. Young people hear this. You hear from the world that what matters is that you get an important and influential job. Or that you're able to make enough money to get all the goodies and save up for retirement. Or that you get your name etched in stone so that generations to come... All of that's foolish. It's empty. It's darkness. What matters is that we know the Lord, that we have peace with the Lord, that we proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of the darkness and into his light. Telling the world how we too were once nobody, but now we're somebody in Christ. How we too were once desperate in the darkness, but now we're joyful in his light. And if you do that, then it doesn't matter if you're a rocket scientist or a surgeon. Or if you push a broom in a factory. Whatever the Lord has called you to do. If you're doing it in this way. If you're doing it in a way that demonstrates that you are unique. That proclaims the excellencies of God. That, that reveals your identity as the servants of God. Then you are doing the greatest thing. You are serving the highest purpose. And you will enjoy the glory of God eternally. How great is that? So let's make it our prayer that we can fulfill that calling, that we can see how it expands into every aspect and corner of life. And let us pray that God would make that our joy, our delight, to know and to proclaim the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father, You have given us such an amazing gift in setting us apart as Your unique people. It leaves us speechless to know that You have bestowed such a gift on us, that You have regarded us as uniquely wonderful and loved, that You've called us to this glorious task that transcends our life here on earth and that fills every aspect of our being. Lord, help us to take up that calling and to delight in it. Help us to take up that calling and to seek out the ways that you would have us to proclaim you, that you would have us to worship you and serve you and lead the, the world in knowing the glory of the one who is the light. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through us as we seek to to demonstrate to the world who you are. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's, let's worship the Lord. Let's celebrate how wonderful and amazing he is. We're going to stand and sing together number 483. Come ye that fear Jehovah. and We'll sing all three stanzas, number 483.